Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter for the Good Bible Studies. I am now in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 29. We'll finish up chapter 2 of 1 John. I'm going to call this section, Don't Love the World and Don't Love Antichrist. Antichrists, plural. Our context is this in the first 14 verses of 1 John chapter 2. John talked about Christ, our lawyer, our advocate. And then he told us about a new commandment, which I take to be the law of Christ as opposed to the old commandment, which was the law of Moses. So we start now in 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, Love Not the World, as the King James has it, is the title of one of Watchman Nee's books. My grandmother gave me that book. I took it to college. I picked it up one day to read it, and I decided that the book was crazy. I said, you can't live like this, not loving the world, because I had visions back then of getting involved in politics and changing the world for the better and getting rid of world poverty by the establishment of capitalism all over the world, and so forth and so on. And I had, I wanted to get educated. I want college degrees and you know all that stuff. And the reason I didn't like the book is because I love the world. When somebody told me, don't love the world, it, it rankled me. Folks, you can't love the world if you're going to follow Christ. It's just as simple as that. Now, what is the world? John defines it himself in verse 16 in three, by breaking it down into three component parts. Number one, the lust of the flesh. Number two, the lust of the eyes. Number three, the pride in one's lifestyle. And we'll go through that in great detail, and we'll get a good idea of what worldliness is. Now, it is interesting to note that people that belong to the world back in John's day do exactly the same things that people today in the 21st century do. Worldlings. There's not much difference. People are people. Regardless of time, regardless of culture, regardless of nation, regardless of gender, they basically do the same things. Maybe a little bit differently, but it's the same general categories. Starting number one, the lust of the flesh. John Gill says that would be would consist of three things. Desire for sex outside of marriage, gluttony, and drunkenness sex, food, and wine. As he talks about the desire of illicit sex, he says, quote, all unchaste desires, thoughts, words, and actions, fornications, adultery, rape, and incest. Well, what can add to that list? Homosexual lust, necrophilia. It's all sorts of sexual perversions that are possible, and they all are characteristics of the world. Gluttony and drunkenness, of course, are too. Now, the devil tried to tempt Jesus with the lust of the flesh when he was hungry. Luke chapter 4, 3, this is when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So Jesus was tempted just like we are. Eve was tempted this way. She was hungry, wanted to eat the fruit in the garden. Genesis 3, 6, then the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Ah, lust of the flesh, get hungry, want sex, won't get, want alcohol. The lust of the eyes is component number two of the world. Gill describes that as covetousness, wanting things you can't have. Seems to me that's mostly materialism. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. Inordinate desires after finery of every kind, gaudy dress, splendid houses, superb furniture, expensive equipage, trappings, and decorations of all sorts. And boy, if you don't think materialism doesn't drive some people, it really does. I've lived in two of the most materialistic nations on earth, America and China. I thought America was number one. No, America's number two. China's number one. It leads to nothing but death. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, as Paul told Timothy. The devil tried to tempt Jesus with the lust of the eyes. He showed him the kingdoms of the world in a minute. Matthew 4, 8 through 9, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. So you see, Jesus was tempted with the lust of his flesh and with the lust of his eyes. But he resisted the temptation because he was tempted in all things like as we are, as the book of Hebrews says. But he resisted. So if we're in him, we can resist too. Now, here's some notable people who succumb to this type of temptation, the lust of the eyes, notable, notable scriptural examples. How about King David? 2 Samuel 11:2. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. 
a very beautiful woman, and we can assume the woman was naked unless she was bathing with her bathing suit on, I don't know, and so he lusted with his eyes, and we know what that led to, the death of his child, death of Bathsheba's husband, misery, Psalm 51, <laughs> bad stuff came from the lust of the eyes. How about Achan in Joshua 7:21? He was the guy that got caught for not dedicating everything uh, captured when they invaded Ai across the Jordan River. And they were supposed to dedicate it to God. It was supposed to be Corban. It was supposed to be burnt up, if I remember correctly. And this is what Joshua said. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, silver shekels, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. You can see for yourself they're concealed in the ground inside my tent with the money under the cloak. That didn't end up too good for Achan, too. If my memory serves me correctly, he got executed. Boy, didn't that gold look good. Didn't that beautiful cloak look good. How about Eve? Genesis 3, 6. Then the woman saw, used her eyes, and she saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at with her eyes, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and we know what happened then. She gave it to Eve, the whole human race fell, and that's why you and I are so miserable today. Jesus talked about the lust of the eyes. Matthew 5, 28. 28. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Third part of worldliness, pride in one's lifestyle. Well, the pride of life, I think the King James has it. John Gill describes this as, quote, ambition of honor, of chief places, and high titles. Sounds like the college environment, or the legal environment, or the political environment. Nothing's changed. Here's what John Gill says in another quote. Living in a sumptuous, gay, luxurious, and pompous manner, in rich diet, costly apparel, Having fine seats, palaces, and stately buildings. Here's what Clark says, how he defines it. Quote, hunting after honors, titles and pedigrees, boasting of ancestry, family connections, great offices, honorable acquaintance. I remember growing up down here in the South, I would hear this phrase all the time. A lot of old-time Southern people would say that families of good stock. And I thought about my family and said, yeah, my granddaddy was poor white trash down there on the coast alcoholic family, bunch of bunch of basically poor white trash. Good stock. <laughs> so, but people love to talk about this, you know. You read in the Roman Empire, poor old Emperor Macrinus, he got assassinated because he didn't have a family pedigree. He wasn't related to the old Roman patrician families, the senatorial families. He was from North Africa, and I forgot where else his family was from, but he was of the equestrian rank. He wasn't of the, the Blue Bloods. And so, when things got rough for him, bang, he got assassinated. Eve was tempted this way. The pride in her lifestyle, Genesis 3, 5. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, the fruit, the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, I'm going to be a big shot, Eve thought. Be like God. I'm going to be godlike. Genesis 3, 6, the next verse. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some fruit and ate it. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to be a smart person. And boy, if you want to see pride in action, get into a college environment. I spent, you know, over two decades teaching in college, and I just, oh, the honorary degrees and the titles and the names on the dormitories, that's for the donors, not for the professors, on and on and on. Honor everywhere, worldly honor. You want all that stuff? Then you you have pride in your lifestyle and you are a worldling. Christians don't do this sort of stuff. Not the ones that follow Jesus. You don't care. All you care about is the kingdom of God. Because you can be very humble in the kingdom of God and very great in that kingdom. But you can also be very great in the kingdoms, kingdoms of this world. And usually you are a nobody, a nothing in the kingdom of God. We go to verse 17, 1 John 2. And the world with its lust is passing away. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and lust of the pride of life. The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will lives will remain forever. Here's a good quote about passing away from John Gill. Quote, Kingdoms, cities, towns, houses, families, estates, and possessions are continually changing and casting into different hands and different forms. The men of the world, the inhabitants of it, are continually removing. One generation goes and another comes. New faces are continually appearing. The riches and honors of the world are fading, perishing, and transitory things. Everything is upon the flux. Nothing is permanent. Hear, hear to that. 
Brother Gill, that's absolutely true. Nothing stays. I can't even watch NBA basketball or Major League Bas- Baseball because people won't stand for the flag. I say, well, okay, nuts to you. It's gone. That's the way life is. Nothing stays nothing remains. Not even things that you think are permanent. Now, the world with its lust is passing away. Here's some options as to what exactly is passing away. Is it the objects of lust which are in the world that are passing away? Money, fame, pride, that kind of thing. Or is it the people who are doing the lusting is passing away? Well, either way, it's probably both. Gill says the first, Clark says the, la- the latter. But, well, let me give you a quote from Clark. The men of this world, their vain pursuits and delusive pleasures are passing away in their successive generations and their very memory perishes. Think of all these big shot robber baron capitalists in the late 19th century. I love to read about these guys. Their lives are very interesting, but nobody remembers who they are. I mean, even Woolworth was one. Well, guess what? I think Woolworth stores are gone now. Kodak, gone. These big shot corporations started by these big shot robber baron capitalists, gone. Except some of them weren't robber barons. Rockefeller's name is still around. He was a Christian, though. But just in general, things pass. How about Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, allegedly? Well, actually, in the case of Epstein, he was convicted of pedophilia of the most grotesque kind. He ended up a suicide in a nasty cell in New York City, and he was a billionaire at the time. Folks, it all passes away, but the kingdom of God is never going to pass away. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. The children is the same Greek word for children that he used in verse 13 of 1 John 2. When he said, I'll write to you fathers, I'm writing to you young men, and I'm writing to you children. Jameson Fawcett Brown has the clever comment. Well, after the fathers and young men were gone, then Antichrist would come on the children who were left. If fathers and young men decided to desert the church. So he's saying, no, hold fast. Children, it is the last hour. Now, I'm going to assume that's the end of the Jewish state. But unfortunately, people say, no, it's the end of the world. Well, if it's the end of the world, then John made a mistake. And I just really can't see how an apostle will make a mistake over a 2,000-year mistake. If you want to talk about his inspired writings, that bothers me. Now, Gil, in a quote I've got from him, says that a lot of people believe it was the end of the Jewish state. But not him, because he believed John wrote after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, so it would be impossible for him to write, Children, it is the last hour, since, and that could not be the destruction of the Jewish state, because that had already happened. And so he couldn't say, Now it's the last hour. Well, the problem with that is, is that a lot of people now believe that John wrote the book of John, 1 John, before AD 70, just like the book wrote the book of Revelation before AD 70. Uh, the, the famous liberal scholar A.T. Robinson, has, who was very late, liberals like to date New Testament books late, all the way into the second century. As he got older in life and got wiser, he started moving the books further and further back to pretty soon he had every book in the New Testament written before 8070. Let me read you the quote from Gill. The present age is the conclusion of the Jewish state as the temple and holy city are shortly to be destroyed. But there are many who suppose that this epistle was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Consequently, the words cannot on that supposition refer to this. Yeah, if you do believe that, but I don't. I believe it was written before 8070. So Gill at least allows for the possibility that John is talking about the end of the Jewish state. Well, it makes sense because it's the last hour. It is the last hour. He was writing at that time before 8070 probably, and he says it is the last hour. In other words, the Jewish state is on its last age. Well, there's some other options. It could be the end of the gospel age, the age of the church, which is basically the same thing as saying the end of the world. But the problem with that is 2,000 years have passed since John wrote, as John Gill presciently points out. And that contradicts the phrase, is the last hour. It is the last hour now when John was writing, writing not 2,000 plus years later. I just did a Bible study just this morning with someone in New Zealand and... I asked her, I said, when is the last hour? She says, at the end of the world. I said, really? Well, then how is it possible that it is the last hour when John's writing? You know what she told me? She said, well, last hour. She was doing it in Chinese, but the Chinese words means the same thing. More sure, end of the end of the time, last hour, end of time. And she said, and I said, well, how can it be the end of time when John says it is the last hour? She said, well, 
the end of time was a long time. 2,000 years is the end of time. I said, really? 2,000 years? The end of time has been going on now for 2,000 years. Well, actually, a lot of people do believe that, unfortunately. I don't. Well, let's look at another option. It could be the last hour of the apostolic age. All were gone, but John, so he says, it's the last hour because all my fellow apostles have passed on to their great reward. And so, therefore, many imposters and heretics have risen, and I'm trying to guard you against all these antichrists. Well, that assumes John was writing after 87, which I said is extremely questionable, or at least is questionable in my mind. He was writing after 8070, and if he was writing before 8070, there'd be other apostles around. So he wouldn't say this is the last hour of the apostolic age. That's not a strong opinion. Not many people believe that. Here's one that most modern evangelicals believe. The NIV Study Bible says that the last hour is the whole period between Jesus' first coming and second coming, the inner advent age, if you will, between the first and second comings. Now, I thought, that's a long last hour. That's not at the end of the world, and that's not at the end of the Jewish age in AD 70, but that's splitting the difference and, and stretching it out between those two events. So that's basically our third option. I think that's extremely weak. Let's look at some scriptures suggested by the NIV Study Bible to prove their point. Acts 2.17, And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity that your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And so the argument goes, since dreaming dreams and prophesying and pouring out the Spirit goes on throughout the church age, therefore last days refer to the church age. My answer to that is no. Peter was referring to the fulfillment at Pentecost, not all throughout church history. And Pentecost was at the end of the Jewish state. I would also like to point out that if the NIV Study Bible is right, and the last days refers to the whole inner Advent age, and that prophesying and having visions is still going, going, go on. That really helps out charismania. Excuse me, the charismatic movement, does it not? That should give cessationists pause. Well, I'm not a cessationist, but I'm, I, and so this verse would help me out as a continuationist, but I don't think that's what Peter was talking about in the last days. He was talking about the end of the Jewish state. Another verse quoted by the NIV Study Bible to say that last hour refers to the whole inner Advent age is 2 Timothy 3.1. But know this, difficult times will come in the last days. Well, and so the argument goes, this is referring to difficult times that have come upon the church between 8030 and now. But the problem with that is, when was Paul warning Timothy? He was warning Timothy at the end of the Jewish age. And he was warning Timothy personally. So why would... Why should we take that and apply it to the whole church age when the warning was obviously to somebody who was living in the last hour of the Jewish state in the 60s? Because Paul wrote that book, 2 Timothy 3.1, in the 60s. Hebrews 1.2. This is another verse used by the NIV Study Bible to support the idea that the last hour refers to the time between the first and second advent. In these last days, the author of Hebrews says in verse, chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, when is he referring to? He's referring to the time that he wrote, in these last days, the end of the Jewish age. He's not talking about God has spoken to us and his son all through the last 2,000 years. He spoke to us by a son when the word came and was incarnate and became flesh. Here's another verse used by the NIV Study Bible to prove that, or to try to prove that the last hour is the inner advent age between 8030 and now. First Peter, or actually not now, but between 80-30 and whenever Jesus comes back at the end of, the end of time. First Peter 1.20, He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of times for you. Was revealed, that's past tense, for you, for you guys that I'm writing to, Peter says. He's already been revealed at the end of the times. So, well, what times is he talking about? He's talking about the end of the Jewish age. So I think this is a, I think the NIV Study Bible is too much influenced by futurism. The last hour, I was talking about the last hour of the Jewish age. And you have heard, like namely in the sermon on, uh, on the Olivet Discourse, Antichrist is coming, even now more Antichrists have come. Jesus over and over in the Olivet Discourse talked about false prophets, false messiahs, the beginning of the birth pangs. That's what they, where they had heard that. Let me read you some scriptures what these early Christians could have heard concerning the coming of Antichrists. First, uh, John, excuse me, John 5, verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. In other words, someone else coming as a Messiah. That's a false Messiah. An Antichrist, if you will. Second Thessalonians 2, 3. This is the famous man of sin passage. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come 
unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, that verse is so controversial, I probably shouldn't quote it, but I believe that's referring to Nero. Uh, I'm about 60% sure, maybe 70, somewhere around there. It's a hard passage. Kenneth Dittry has pretty good arguments that it's speaking about Nero. But a lot of people aren't going to buy that, so I'll skip that one. How about Acts 20, verses 29 through 30? This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus on his way back to Jerusalem after the third journey. I know that after my departure, his departure from Miletus, Ephesus, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and men will rise up from your own number with deviant doctrines to lure the disciples into following them. Deviant doctrines, folks, they're everywhere today. They were everywhere back then. They were savage wolves. They the wolves would eat the flock up. Antichrist. Matthew twenty four twenty four. False messiahs and false prophets, this is the Olivet Discourse, will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the very elect, even the elect. That was referring to right before eighty seventy. Matt on our Orthodox Brothers viewpoint of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew twenty four five, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. So the early Christians had heard all that. They knew what Jesus had said. And so that's how they knew it was the last hour. And John reminds them of it. He says, Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists, plural, have come. We see these Antichrists and we know from this that it is the last hour. So you see all these false prophets, you know, he's referring back to the Olivet Discourse, Jerusalem and Israel, the persecuting nation that is chasing Christians every chance they get. They're going down. Now let's look at this word, Antichrist. Now, this is interesting, of course, because in American Christianity, is Antichrist this and Antichrist this, and who's the Antichrist? And when I was a young Christian, it was Henry Kissinger, and then it was Omar Gaddafi, Gaddafi or whatever his first name was. Oh, and one of my favorites, it was Ronald Reagan. Yeah, right. And, you know, as soon as one Antichrist dies, they put take the books off the shelves, write some more books, put them back on the shelves, and make another million dollars off of gullible sheep. It's disgraceful. And so I have got an animus against this word. I don't like it. Not because I believe there's going to be a future Antichrist. I don't. But because of the way people are so confused by it and so used by it. Now, first of all, we've got to decide if this Antichrist is a person or a system of false doctrine. People who say it's a single individual, it could be Nero. In fact, uh, 666 in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, the man of sin the overwhelming majority of the early church believe that Antichrist was Nero, and I believe it's to be Nero too. Ken Gentry makes a good argument saying that that Antichrist is Nero. So if you read it that way, then it's the Antichrist is coming means Nero is about to come. Nero died in 68. His book was written sometime before that. So he's saying, hey, Antichrist is going to come. He's going to persecute you like Nero did. And so if you're going to say it's the Antichrist, I would say it's Nero. But notice there's no the there. It's Antichrist is coming. I don't I used to think that proved something. I'm not so sure. I did a little bit of digging into this. And it turns out that the the is in some Greek manuscripts, but not in others. And in some English translations and not in others. The he is ha for the article the. And also uh, another complicating factor is in the Greek, when you have ha in front of a word, you don't necessarily translate it into English as the. It's not a straight one-on-one translation. So, as a result, the translations are all over the place. Here's some translations that don't put the V in front. They just say, Antichrist is coming. That would be the Homo Christian Study Bible, the King James Version, the Mace New Testament, the New American Standard Bible, the Wesley Version, the American Standard Version, the Darby Version. All of those just say, Antichrist is coming. However, the NIV, the New American Bible, and Young's Literal Translations puts the in front. The Antichrist is coming. And by golly, we've got another option. Some translations put an an in front. An Antichrist is coming. The Montgomery translation, the Weymouth translation, and the Good Word translation. So you see the translations don't agree. And even the Greek manuscripts don't agree. The family of manuscripts. I got the Nestle Allen text. These are Greek manuscript families that don't have the the in front. Don't have the ha. Nestle Allen, Tischendorf, Westcott, Hort. The Byzantine test text and the textus receptus do have the ha in front. So what does all this prove? Well, it proves you can translate it either way as far as I'm concerned. But if you put the the in the Antichrist, 
If you want to do that, I would say it probably refers to Nero. If you don't want to do that, you can say, okay, it refers to a system of non, non-belief. John Gill holds that. He says this is not meant to be a single individual. He says that the Antichrist in the former clause is explained by Antichrist in the next clause. In other words, Antichrist is coming. In other words, the spirit of Antichrist is coming. And then he gives, and then he breaks it out and says, Antichrist, plural, are coming. And Gill gives some examples. Is he the Emperor Domitian, the Gnostics, Nicolaitans, the Nazareans, the Cerinthians, the Romish Pontiffs, etc., 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 etc.? Answer. Any person, thing, doctrine, system of religion, polity, etc., which is opposed to Christ and to the spirit and spread of his gospel is antichrist. We need not look for this imaginary being in any of the above exclusively. Even Protestantism may have its antichrist as well as popery. Every man who opposes the spirit of the gospel and every teacher and writer who endeavors to lower the gospel standard to the spirit and taste of the world is a genuine antichrist, no matter where or among whom he is found. The heresies which sprang up in the days of St. John were the Antichrist of that time, as there has been a succession of oppositions to Christianity in its spirit and spread through every age since its promulgation in the world, so there has been a succession of Antichrists. We may bring this matter much lower. Every enemy of Christ, everyone who opposes his reign in the world, in others or in himself, is an Antichrist, and consequently every wicked man is an Antichrist. But the name has been generally applied to whatever person or thing systematically opposes Christ and his religion. That was a quote not from John Gill. It was from Adam Clark. Excuse me. Notice that he says anybody that's an enemy of Christ is an antichrist. It's interesting. The Chinese translation has enemy of Christ. The enemy of Christ. Instead of antichrist, the enemy of Christ. Well, you can see there that there's so much difference of opinion on that that you can't say whatever you can say about it. It's not talking about a future Antichrist that's going to take over the world. That's just nonsense. That's just the fevered imagination of Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsey. Last day's madness, panic porn. Now let me say something else about the Antichrist. He's often identified with the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2 and the beast in Revelation 13. I need to emphasize this. There is nowhere that this Antichrist in 1 John 2, 2 is connected with the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2, or with the sea beast in Revelation 13. It's just not there. That is just assumed over and over again by people who assume and expect you to swallow it without being critical. But it's not there. So that means that when John talks about Antichrist, he could be right, just as Clark and Gill are saying. It's just talking about the spirit of the Antichrist, or anybody in general that's opposed to Christ. It could be all those false proto-Gnostic Docetus that John is complaining about in his book of 1 John. That could be who he's talking about. So the bottom line is the popular assumption that there will be one big bag at Antichrist at the end of the time is a huge theological assumption. It ain't necessarily so. Now, there might be, but I can't predict the future, and I don't believe there will be. Here's Gill mentioning Antichrist that popped up during John's time. The apostle might well say there were many, since in his time were the followers of Simon Magus, the Menandrians, the Saturnilians, the Basilidians, the Nicolaites, the Gnostics, the Carpocratians, the Cerinthians, the Ebionites, and the Nazarenes. We go now to 1 John 2, verse 19. They, who, the Antichrist, went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Now, you ask, well, how did Antichrist end up amongst the churches that John was writing to? Well, they were hypocrites. That's how they did it. They went out from us. In other words, they left the church because sooner or later, heretics will divide themselves from the flock. You can count on it. They can't stand to be around true Christians any more than true Christians can stand to be around the darkness that the Antichrist represent. So they went out from us. Who's the us? Well, it could be the apostles. It could be from John and his readers. They left us. It could be the churches of Asia, which Gill suggests, and which I believe is what John was saying here. It could be the church at Ephesus in particular, because John was writing from Ephesus, a speculation. It could be the church in Judea even, because in John's earlier days, he was one of the pillar apostles in Jerusalem, and they had that big Jerusalem council in AD 50, and he could be referring to heretics who left the church in Judea. I don't think so. It was interesting speculation could be just Christians in general. They went out from us Christians. Gill believes that. I really, I think what it is is they went out from us, meaning the churches that in Ephesus that John was dealing with, 
But at any rate, they left. They did not belong to us. Despite the fact that they had insinuated themselves amongst the Christians, like the reefs and the love feast mentioned by Jude, they sneak their way in. And that's what heretics always do. Now, in the last part of verse 19, John says they went out. Why? So that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. So this is another test to distinguish heretics from true sheep, true believers, is if they will not stay in fellowship with those who are in the light because they are in the dark and they leave. So that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Now, this verse is a verse that's used by Calvinists a lot to counter the accusation or counter the supposition by Arminians that people can lose their salvation. They say, well, he said he was a Christian, he acted like a Christian, he looked like a Christian, and now he's denying every tenet of the faith and he's living like hell, so he obviously lost his salvation. The answer is to that is no. It's very probable he was not saved to start out with. They went out from your church, but they did not belong to your church. Or they went out from the Christian community, but they did not belong to the Christian community. They were hypocrites. So that is a good verse. And there's a lot of phony Christians out there who aren't really Christians. They're just fakes. There are true Christians who unfortunately backslide. And those are the ones that are hard to tell whether they're saved or not because they've grown some fruit. And then the fruit gets choked out by their sins. But at any rate, not all who say they're Christ are believers in Christ, 1 John 2.20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. The but means in opposition to these heretics that don't belong to you. You, on the other hand, have an anointing from the Holy One. Of course, the anointing is the Holy Spirit. The reference is probably to the anointing oil prescribed by the law, as Gill and Clark say. It was used to anoint priests as well as kings. And so that's a perfect metaphor for the Holy Spirit because we are priests and kings in God's kingdom. We have an anointing. Our anointing is not oil. It's rather the Holy Spirit. The anointing comes from the Holy One. That could either be the Holy Spirit himself, or it could be from Jesus, or it could be from God the Father. Which person of the Trinity anoints us with oil? It's not clear from this verse. Second Corinthians one twenty one says, It is God who anoints us with the Holy Spirit. Now it is God who strengthens us with you in Christ and has anointed us. So God has anointed us. Second Corinthians one twenty one. But this verse that you can't really tell. And all of you have knowledge, of course, this is again a, a reference, an allusion to the false knowledge that was being propagated or, or claimed by the proto-Gnostic, docetic heretics who said that the Bible body was evil and that Jesus was a ghost. And what John is saying, hey, you've got knowledge, you don't need the knowledge from these heretics, from these Gnostic heretics. Of course, Gnostic it comes from gnosis, which means knowledge in Greek. You've got the true knowledge, you don't need the fake knowledge. And, of course, it doesn't mean that you have all knowledge. You're not omniscient, of course, because then you would be God. But that would be stupid to even think that. We go to verse 21, 1 John 2. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. Now, I have not written to you could refer to the whole book of 1 John, the whole epistle. Or it could be the particular part in the letter dealing with the apostates, with those who were were with them and then went out from them but weren't but didn't belong to them could be referring to that or it could be referring to the whole book that john has written doesn't really matter actually the reason he wrote it was because not because you don't know the truth they did know the truth they had the holy spirit he just said they had the holy spirit they had the anointing of god and what is the anointing of god the truth <laughs> as we'll see in a minute anointing is connected with truth so you got that anointing so that's not why well, I didn't write you to tell you something new that you didn't know. What he's saying is I, I wrote to you because you needed to be reminded of it. He says you do know it in verse 21 because no lie comes from the truth. You know the truth and you know that the people that these people are speaking lies. No lie can come from the truth and every lie that, that you hear out of their mouth is a lie. So they're not of the truth. So get rid of them if they hadn't left you already. That's a nice paraphrase there. John is probably trying to obviate an objection that might be made based on what he said in verse 20. In verse 20, he says, hey, you guys have got all knowledge. And now he's saying, and then so, and so then people might object, well, if we have all knowledge, why are you writing the letter? Why are you trying to imply that we don't know the truth if we have all knowledge? You're being inconsistent, John. And John says, well, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. I know you know the truth. I'm just trying to remind you. We go to 1 John verse, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. 
Now, this the Antichrist, the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, is not a future Antichrist. It says this is the one who denies, present tense, the Father and the Son, when John was writing. This is, I-S, is the Antichrist, not the future Antichrist. Basically, somebody who denies Jesus. And folks, let's think about it. That's a lot of people that you and I know that deny Jesus. There's a lot of Antichrist out there. Enemies of Christ, as the Chinese version has it. Enemies, his enemies. You don't bend your knee to Jesus, you're his enemy. He loves you, but you're his enemy. Well, I say he loves you. He loves you in the sense that you're part of his creation, but you're still his enemy. We're enemies of God, Paul says in Romans, and now we're friends of God after we get saved. Now, this particular Antichrist does have the Greek article uh, in front of the noun Antichrist, but as I've said earlier, the article in Greek is not always translated as the so we can say this one is Antichrist, or we can say this one is the Antichrist. It seems to me it would be more smooth, it'd be smoother if, if the translation was like this. This one is Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. But no English versions that I know do that. Well, I can't say that. The KGV, the 1 John 2.22 in the good old King James. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist. That's where I got the idea that there was no the Antichrist in the Bible. This actually depends on your translation, and it even depends on which Greek manuscript you translate from. So some places have the Antichrist. However, there is no future the Antichrist, no future one evil person that takes over the world. That is the product of somebody's perfervid eschatological imagination. Now, even though if you translate it here in verse 22 with the Antichrist, it says this one is the Antichrist, but that's just a general representation of a whole class of Antichrist that John has just mentioned. So he's still not talking about one Antichrist. He's talking about anybody that denies the Father and the Son, not just one person. Here's a quote about denying Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the supernatural and miraculous birth of Jesus Christ, who denies Jesus to be the Son of God. I mean, think about this great theologian down there in Atlanta, Alpharetta, Georgia, Andy Stanley. He says, oh, my people don't care about where Jesus came from people he's talking to, well, he's not going to talk about the virgin birth too much, but at least he believes in it, and thank God for that, so we can't call him an antichrist, we just call him a compromiser. He is antichrist who denies the supernatural miraculous birth of Jesus Christ, who denies Jesus to be the Son of God, and who denies God to be the Father of the Lord Jesus. Thus he denies the Father and the Son. The Jews in general, and the Gnostics in particular, denied the miraculous conception of Jesus with both, he was accounted no more than a common man, the man of Joseph and Mary. Now, the same idea of denying God is in chapter 1, verse 9, 2 John. Anyone who does not remain in Christ Jesus but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, the one, this one, has both the Father and the Son. So with somebody that goes beyond the teaching of Jesus, who denies that, God the, that Jesus is the Son, and thereby denies that God is the Father, that's the Antichrist, anybody. You have Antichrist all around you. you you've probably met 100,000 Antichrists in your life. It's not the Antichrist. Now note this part in verse 23. No one who denies the Son can have the Father. How many times have you heard people say, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. Hey, you just denied the Son, and guess what? You, can't, you don't have the Father. You don't believe in the Father. You believe in the product of your own imagination, and you have basically blasphemed God and you are a sinner before him, and you're going to pay a horrible price unless you repent. Simple as that. We go to verse 24, 1 John 2. What have you heard from the beginning? What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. Well, what you have heard from the beginning is the Word of God. Adam Clark puts it this way, quote, The doctrines concerning the incarnation, passion, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession of the Lord Jesus. That's the basic Christianity. In other words, that basic Christianity must remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And, of course, if, you're Ar if, you, are, if you have an Arminian bent, you're going to say, Oh, see there, if what you have heard from the beginning does not remain in you, then you will not remain in the Son and you will lose your salvation. And that means that Calvinism and Augustinianism is wrong. That if there's a third-class conditional, aeon plus the subjunctive, and it used to be called a more probable future condition, which means the fulfillment is uncertain but likely, 
So strictly speaking from the Greek, if what you have heard from the beginning is likely to remain in you, but still there's a possibility it might not be. So how do Calvinists explain that verse without allowing for a possibility of losing one's salvation? Well, here's the answer. He's saying if you have the evidence of what you have heard, it remains in you. If you still remember what was been put in you by your Christian teachers and still believe in it, then you're saved. You will remain in the Son and the Father. He's probably he's trying to give them a way of proving that they're in Christ. Again, these strict tests that he gives, the moral test, the social test, the doctrinal test. And he's saying, look, you pass all those tests, you see what's in you, then, hey, you know that you're also in the Son and the Father, and you don't need to worry. So the whole point of this if thing is not to scare people to think they're going to lose their salvation. It's exactly the opposite, is to show that they actually do are saved, because John knows that everything they've heard from the beginning is, is going to be in them. Here's how John Gill puts it in more eloquent language, quote, what is here said is not either the cause or condition of men being in the Father and in the Son, or their continuance in them, but is descriptive of the persons that are in them, and is an open and manifest evidence of their being and continuance in them. In other words, if what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, and there's evidence of Jesus in you, then you're going to be in the Father. And of course, I'm sure sure John assumed that his readers would have evidence of Jesus being in them. What you have heard from the beginning, there's that word beginning, if what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, that is probably from the first time the time that you first heard the gospel. It's obviously not the beginning of the world because they didn't hear the gospel at the beginning of the world. They didn't exist. So that was a little bit easier than the, beginning, than the word beginning in a lot of other places, which is difficult to determine what exactly is meant. We go now to verse 25. And this is the promise that he himself made to us. Colon. Eternal life. That he is probably God the Father. Some people say it's Jesus the Son. There's a lot of examples of where Jesus the Son, or at least where either God or either God the Father or God the Son promises eternal life. The same John that wrote 1 John wrote the Gospel of John. And let me read to you how many times that Jesus promised eternal life. John 3.15. Everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. John 3.36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 6.40, this is the will of, fa of, the fa of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. John 6.47, I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. John 17.2, for you gave him authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all of you. John 17:3 This is eternal life that you may know that they may know you the only true God. He's praying to God when he says that. So eternal life, I didn't realize we hear that phrase eternal life all the time. It never occurred to me how often it's mentioned in the scriptures, especially in John. So this is not a deduction from the scriptures. This is an explicit statement of the scriptures that we're going to live forever. And folks, if you can lose your salvation, how can you live forever? If God gives me eternal life when I believe in Jesus. Eternal means eternal. That doesn't mean there's a gap in it somewhere where I can lose my salvation. Eternal means forever. If our new spiritual lives are eternal, how can we lose our salvation? If salvation is lost, it is, by definition, not eternal. I wish I could hear an articulate Arminian explain that. I don't think it can be explained very well. 1 John 2, 26-27 I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The anointing you received from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as he has taught you remain in him. Now, here's the talk of anointing. Now, of course, I know charismatics talk about the anointing, meaning you have the Holy Spirit falls on you so you can give a prophecy of some sort, maybe a big miracle. But actually here, the anointing is that you'll know the truth, more doctrinal than it is power. It's talking about what you're taught. Now, John says he has written these things. What things? Well, he's resuming himself from 1 John 2.14 and verse 21, which we've gone over previously. But let me read it again. 1 John 2.14, I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who was from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And now, in verse 26, he says, I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, these antichrists. He's coming back also from verse 21. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. So he's writing to them, explaining. he's explaining to them why he has written to them. 
He's trying to explain. I don't want you to get sucked up in the doctrinal heresy. That was one of the main purposes of writing First John, was to protect the flock from the heretics. He's writing these things to you. That could be the whole epistle, or it could be about what he just wrote about, about the false prophets, the Antichrist, or it could be everything. But the whole book is about staying away from heretics. I tend to prefer the whole book. I've written the whole book of First John to you about those who are trying to deceive you. 27, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. That's the Holy Spirit, as I said earlier. How does the Holy Spirit teach compared to how the heretics taught? Well, as the NIV Study Bible says it, the Holy Spirit illuminates, quote from the NIV Study Bible, development of the capacity to appreciate and appropriate God's truth already revealed. So the Holy Spirit does that, develops your capacity to understand the Bible. The Holy Spirit makes the Bible meaningful in thought and daily living. Now here's what the Holy Spirit does not do in teaching us. It does not reveal new truth. There's four persons in the Trinity, something like that. And the Holy Spirit does not explain all difficult passages to our satisfaction. We have to do that by hard study. And not only hard study, but lots of theological discussions with our theologically astute brethren. Now here, John says, you've got an anointing you don't need anyone to teach you. Well, that sounds like Tom T. Hall, me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. We don't need anybody else to tell us what it's all about. That's exactly what that sounds like, and that's exactly what it does not mean. It doesn't mean, oh, i got the Holy Spirit. I can just believe Jesus just guides me. He illuminates me, and I don't need anybody to teach me the Bible. I mean, this verse sounds like it's a sanction for mysticism. No, that's not what it means. When John says you don't need anyone to teach you, he means you don't need any one of these false, proto-gnostic, docetist antichrists to teach you. So don't listen to them. Just know that you have the Holy Spirit to teach you. His anointing teaches you about all things. That means not all things ever completely that's available in the world, because then you would be omniscient. It's talking about all spiritual things that you need to know. The, Holy, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is true. It's not a lie, which means that, hey, you listen to the Holy Spirit, who, of course, will use the word to explain things to you. And that is not a lie like that you're getting from these Gnostic heretics. And just as he has taught you, remain in him. Stay in Jesus, you won't get seduced by anybody. To say that the Christians that that John was writing to didn't need any teachers at all cannot be the meaning. I think common sense will tell you that, but also think about it. John, in writing that letter, was teaching them. As John Gill points out, he was teaching. He would be cutting his own throat. He'd be saying, hey, you don't need me to teach you, so quit reading my letter. Teachers are one of the minister gifts of the body of Christ. Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. That's the Great Commission. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God has placed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. A spiritual gift placed in the church. Teachers, Ephesians 4, 11, and he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Pastor teachers, probably the same gift. Pastors who also teach. Colossians 3.16, let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 1 Timothy 4.11, command and teach these things, Paul tells Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Spread the word, teach. 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's slave must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach. John Gill has an interesting idea. When, he, when we look at this verse and say that you don't need anyone to teach you, it obviously means you don't need the heretics to teach you. But John Gill says you don't need anyone to teach you elementary things as if you were a babe in Christ. You don't need anybody to teach you that because you have the anointing. Well, that's probably true, but I don't think that's what John was talking about. Here. The whole context is heretics, heretics, heretics. Stay away from them. We go now to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears as we so that when he appears we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. John calls them little children. John has returned to addressing the whole body of his readers as he did at the first verse of first John two when he says, My little children, little children was then divided up into fathers, strong men, and children. So little children addresses this whole readership, if you will. He could have been saying that, referring to them as little children because he's very old or maybe because they're not so old in the Lord. And therefore, little babies or spiritual babies are more likely to get seduced by these heretics. 
So maybe he's just saying, hey, little children, stay with your father. Remain in him. Stay with your father. Don't wander. Don't listen to the pervert that offers you ice cream if you'll get in his car and take a ride. Now, this word remain. So little children, remain in him. It's interesting how in just the 24, the previous four verses, as well as this verse, how many times John uses remain. Verse 24, what you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, the anointing has taught you, remain in him. So, basically, the idea is don't go out like the heretics did. Stay put. Remain. Don't go anywhere. Stay loyal. Remain. So, now, little children, remain in him. Of course, that could be God or it could be Christ. Jameson Foster Brown says it's Christ. So that when he appears, we may have boldness. Now, this idea of boldness is all through the book of 1 John. 1 John 3.21, Dear friends, if our conscience doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Boldness or confidence. 1 John 4.17, In this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. For we are as he is in the world. Confidence. 1 John 5.14, Now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We should have confidence and boldness before our Father. We can walk with boldness into the, into the throne room of grace. Boldness. And not be ashamed. Christians should, ha- Christians should have boldness in the day of judgment, as I just said. When is that day of judgment? Not be ashamed before him at his coming. Again, whenever you see coming, you've got to make a decision. Are they talking about the second coming of Christ at the end of time? Or is the scripture author talking about coming in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70? Clark says it's at the end of time. But my problem with that is, so John's readers are going to be living at the end of the world so they won't be ashamed, so we can read it this way according to Adam Clark. So now little children remain in him so that when he appears at the end of the world, you guys who were born 2,000 years plus before Jesus comes back may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I don't know how that works. I'm sure you can make it work if you work at it a little bit. When he appears 2,000 plus years later, that's going to give the readers of First John boldness? I don't think so. We go to verse 29. We'll finish up this audio. 1 John 2. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Ah, there's a moral test again. What have we got now? We've got the fellowship test. People walking in the light as he is in the light. We know that they're saved or not. And if you walk in the light, you're saved. The fellowship test. The moral test. If you obey Jesus' commands, you love him. The doctrinal test. If you don't deny the Father and the Son, but you believe him. Moral test, fellowship test, or the social test, and the doctrinal test. There might be some others I can't think of them at the top of my head. Now, if you know that he is righteous, you know that you're born of him. So this is, again, a test to encourage the Christians to know that they're Christians. John Gill says this verse actually fits better at the beginning of the next chapter. 1 John 3, verse 1. Look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We're God's children. So that fits right in with verse 29, 1 John 2. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. In other words, you're his children. In verse 29, 1 John 2, and in 1 John 3, verse 1, we should be called God's children. So it kind of fits together with the next verse. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him again. Is that God the Father, God the Son? The commentators disagree. I'm not going to take a stand. Ladies and gentlemen, we finish verse 29 of 1 John 2. We finish the whole chapter now. In our next audio, we will turn to 1 John 3. We'll do the first 10 verses. I'm going to call that section how the children of God can keep from sinning. He talks about children of God and how to avoid sin. Hope to see you in that audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.